Turn with me to the book of Colossians. <laughs> I am super excited. There's Bibles in the back if you don't have one or your phone or your tablet, whatever. I'll turn to the book of Colossians. Again, I am super excited to begin this new series. We'll be walking through the book of Colossians together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over the next 12 or 13 weeks. Um, it's about 13 minutes on my phone to hear the book. I mean, you could do that a couple of times a day. I, I encourage you to be absorbed in the book of Colossians. Um, and we'll be there for, again for 12 or 13 weeks. And the remaining of the summer after this, we'll be back in uh, Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah. And then hopefully and prayerfully as the summer ends, we're in our new building. Unless the Lord directs us otherwise, we'll be in one of the gospel accounts, either Matthew or Luke. we already been through John and Mark together as a church. So Luke or Matthew is kind of where we're headed. Uh, our sermon series this over the next 12 to 13 weeks, as you can see, is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. I seem to be a little loud, Mike. If you can lower it down, I'd be good. Uh, the book of Colossians, in many ways, is connected with the book of Ephesians, if you're familiar with that book. Written around the same time, Ephesians speaks of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ uh, really uh, connected to the church, while the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in Colossians is a broader scope, and it's really about his, his sufficiency and supremacy of the whole world. And what I love about this book, it is so full and it is so packed with the beauty of Christ. It is brilliantly Christological, bursting with the greatness and the magnificence of Christ. When the scripture speaks about the person and the work of Christ being supreme, it means that Christ Jesus, the Lord, has supremacy over the whole earth. Jesus Christ reigns with complete sovereign authority over the whole universe, over all of creation. There is not a single part of your life, there's not a single part of our church, there's not a single part of, of our country, our state, our world, our cosmos that is not under the supreme control, reigning rule of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of Colossians writes this in verse 16, by him, that's Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Christ has supremacy over all things, for all things were made through him and for him and by him. There's no other authority that comes even close or even compares to the supremacy of Christ over all things. He is ultimate in power, he is ultimate in glory, he is ultimate in authority and preeminence, pre prominence. And when we understand the supremacy of Christ, which we will see, we have a more, we have a better and greater accurate view of who he is and what that does, it gives us a more accurate view, really of a worldview and a view of ourselves. It'll help us combat false idols. It'll help us uh, uh, really combat false worldviews. Things that we place our hope in. Things that we uh, not only place our hope in, but people that we place our trust in. We talk about the sufficiency of Christ. We're talking about that which is all satisfying. So not only is he supreme over all things, but he is most satisfying. There's been a provision made for us that completely sustains and satisfies our souls. For our need of salvation, 
for human flourishing, all is found in the sufficiency of Christ. In other words, we don't have to look outside of the gospel. We don't have to look outside of Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, for the power that brings salvation and that which sustains us brings us human flourishing. Christ is sufficient for human flourishing and for salvation. So if you're here this morning and you're hurting and you're broken, Jesus Christ is sufficient to bring you healing. If you're caught up in addiction, Christ is sufficient to set you free. If you've been under the influence of the enemy and his lies, Christ is sufficient to break the power of evil over you. If you lack wisdom, Christ is sufficient to make you wise. It is Christ and his gospel that will sustain us through hard times, difficult marriages, tough and uncertain times. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes this, In Christ, in union with him, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 8, See it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and power. Now the church of Colossae was being told they needed something, something more than just Jesus to know God. Something more than Jesus to be a whole person. Something more than Jesus to defeat the powers of sin, the powers of evil. Something more than Jesus for salvation. Something more than Jesus to have true spirituality that Christ was not sufficient. So Paul writes this letter and he's affirming the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in order to nullify these false teachings, these false beliefs. For all joy and all uh, peace, meaning, value, purpose, hope, fulfillment in life now and forever is bound up in Christ alone. And when a person receives Christ Jesus, repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior from sin, Lord of their life, they enter into an all-sufficient relationship with an all-sufficient Christ. That's the point. That's, the, that's the, the, the book of Colossians. Now, the epistle or the book of Colossians was written, we know, by the Apostle Paul from his house arrest in Rome, 60 to 62 AD. As we normally do when we study new books, there's a history behind. We're going to spend 15, 20 minutes in history. Again, I say this every time. If you don't like history, go to sleep. The person next to you will wake you in about a half hour, okay? We've got to get some background. Paul's in Rome. He's in 60 to, 62, to, 60 to 62 AD. And he's writing this letter because of a report from a man by the name of Epaphras. While Paul was on his third missionary journey, um, he, I got a map for you, he leaves Antioch. Um, you can see Antioch to the right by Syria. That's the, like the home base of his missionary journeys on his third missionary journey. He's in Antioch and he is headed out to Asia Minor and he's going to other churches, churches in which he already 
planted. And he's visiting these churches, encouraging these churches, and, and strengthening and discipling the men and women in the churches. You can find Paul's third missionary journey in beginning in Acts chapter 18, if you want the history behind it. By the time you get to Acts chapter 19, verse 23, it says that Paul went uh, through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all disciples. You could see uh, Galatia, Phrygia right there by the Antioch and Pisidia. Uh, Pisidia, Pisidia. And you can see the, the, the line. That's Paul's third missionary journey and where he's headed. And if you see it, you'll follow. You'll see he ends up in Ephesus, okay? You can see it right on the screen. Now, when he gets to this major city, it's a major city in Asia Minor, Ephesus, he goes to the, there and he starts talking to the disciples and he finds out the disciples in uh, Ephesus only heard of the baptism of repentance from John. So Paul said, all right, well, that's not complete. Let me finish. And he begins to share with them the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Holy Spirit, lays hands on them, and God grants them the Holy Spirit as a sign and a witness that the salvation has come to these people, these, these Gentiles. And like Paul usually does, he goes into the synagogue and he begins preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel in the synagogues in that area until they're you know, done with him, beat him up, kick him out, throw him out, stone him, and drag him out. Then he finds some other place to go and... Right on cue, while he's in Ephesus, they, uh, they get some, some Jewish people to stir up some dissension. Uh, the Bible says they were stubborn and they were, had unbelief. And they were speaking evil against the way, which is another name for Christians. So Paul says, you know what, I'm going to go to a hall. I'm going to rent a hall. Terranus is the name of the hall. And he rents this hall, a place where people would come, sort of like an American Legion or somewhere, uh, where philosophers would come. And Paul rents this space, brings his disciples there, and he stays in Ephesus for like two years, two more years. So possibly up to three years. And he's teaching and he's proclaiming the gospel while in Ephesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, it says that this continued the preaching of the gospel for two years Chapter 19, verse 10 of Acts, and it says this, so that all the residents of Asia, that'd be Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So all throughout that region of Asia, the gospel is being preached and proclaimed, and people are coming into the major city and then going back to their home cities. That's what's going on. And that's what happened with Epaphras. It was during Paul's third missionary journey while he was in uh, Ephesus that Epaphras Heard the gospel, received the gospel, was discipled, and now he is a child of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, we see Epaphras show up. It says this, Paul writing, just as you learned it, that is the gospel, just as you learned the gospel, chapter 1, verse 7 of Colossians, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul's in Rome writing to the Colossae. He's a faithful minister on your behalf, Church of Colossae, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you from Colossae, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, he's with Paul, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He's praying for this church of Colossae, where he's from, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So, after this gospel encounter, while in Ephesus, Epaphras goes back to his hometown of Colossae, 100, 120 miles away, and either plants this church or becomes one of the main pastors and leaders in the church Colossae. 
we're talking 53, 54 to 57 AD. At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he gets sent, he goes back to Jerusalem. It's around 57 AD, he's in Jerusalem. And <laughs> the poor guy, right on cue, he gets beat up, dragged out, uh, and gets arrested for preaching the gospel. The guy's been in and out of jail and beat up so many times for the gospel. It's not even funny. But anyway, he, 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 gets, he gets dragged in by the Roman authorities. You could read it uh, in, in Acts. And they're ready to flog him. And Paul says, oh, you can, you, you can flog a Roman citizen without a proper trial? And they're like, uh, actually, we can't. And they stop. Paul wants to go to Rome. And Paul's thinking, you know what? I know how to get to Rome. While they're getting ready to beat me, I'll just tell them I'm a Roman citizen. I'll get a free ride. And that's exactly what Paul does. He's the only guy I know that's incarcerated and gets to go where he's going by being incarcerated. And while he's, he goes to Caesarea, then by the time he gets to Rome to get his fair trial that he's supposed to get from Jerusalem, it's around 60 AD. And while he's in Rome and he's under house arrest, he's got some freedom there, 60 AD, 61, 62 AD, he writes Colossians. He writes Ephesians. He writes Philippians. And he writes a little book called Philemon. So now Epaphras heard, he's in Colossae. It's about six or seven years after he got conversion. And he hears that Paul's in Rome. So Epaphras takes the trip to Rome. It's like a thousand miles to go see Paul who's in Rome. And he goes to Paul, again, it's, it's, it's six, seven, eight years. I don't know, somewhere around there. And he goes to Rome, goes to see Paul and tells Paul all that's going on Colossae. All the great things about the work of the gospel in Colossae. And then he also tells Paul of some concerns that are there. Okay? And Paul writes a letter. 60, 61, 62 AD. While in Rome, after getting Epaphras, to, after Epaphras visits him, he writes a letter and he wants to send it back to Colossae. Tracking with me? Everybody go like that. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the city. Important we know. All right? Colossae was in the region of Phrygia, which I told you is the Roman province of Asia Minor. I got another map for you. Just feel like maps today. Asia Minor, Colossae, um, and as you see up on top is a little bit like a closer look. Um, you got Laodicea, actually, and Hierapolis. You see those two cities? They're clunked together 10, 11, 12, 13 miles apart. And Colossae was somewhat of a, of a prominent city. It, had come, it wasn't as, as big as it was 100, 200 years before Paul, but it was, it was a major city. Um, it, it had a lot of resources. It had a, you could see the river, um, the Lycus River and the Meander River, a lot of uh, uh, greenery, there was, you know, a lot of places for the sheep to, to pasture, so they did well with um, wool and things of that nature. Part of, the, part of the Amanda River that runs through um, Colossae also had this uh, salt deposit that was used for dye. So it was, it, was, it was a fairly nice city, but had declined a lot. And what happened is Laodicea and Heropolis had really grown during Paul's day and kind of overshadowed Colossae. So Paul's on his missionary journey, goes right through there, probably either went through Colossae or went around it nearby on his third missionary journey. But we know that um, he didn't actually um, visit the church or didn't plant the church. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Um, Laodicea, by the way, is one of the letters to the seven letters uh, to the churches in Revelation. So 
Um, by that time, Hierapolis and Laodicea was a bigger and more prominent city. But chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes this in Colossae, For I want you to know how a great struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul's writing this letter from the information he got from Epaphras, but he's never been to Colossae's church. He didn't plant the church. That's important to know, and I'll tell you why. But he's writing a letter to the church, okay? If you have your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles open. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Paul sends this letter back, not with Epaphras, but with a man by the name of Tychicus. How's that for a name if you're looking for one? And he sends Tychicus back after hearing everything from Epaphras. He writes this letter. He sends Tychicus back to Colossae and... Actually, he gives him also the letter of Ephesians as well. Both of them go back. Okay? And, and here's something really interesting. Have your Bibles open. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says this. I'm sending Tychicus back to you to tell you all about my activities. He is what? A beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Okay? So, uh, uh, Paphras told me what's going on in Rome. I'm writing the letter of the concerns I have, and I'm sending it back with Tychicus, back to Colossae, to read to the church. Verse 9. He's accompanied by who? Onesimus. Okay? Onesimus, Paul says, is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He's from Colossae as well. Now, there's a small little New Testament book called Philemon. Anybody hear Philemon? Small little book. Not many of you, I see. Okay, that's all right. Philemon was written by the Apostle Paul during the same time. Philemon, written to the man called Philemon, is in Colossae. Okay? He's part of the church in Colossae. And by the providence of God, it just so happens that Philemon, back in Colossae, one of his slaves, whose name is Onesimus, ran away. That's what the book's about. And while he ran away, guess what? He comes to faith, because he's in Rome, and he comes to faith in Christ, because of Paul's gospel ministry. All right? In Philemon, Paul writes to Philemon, he calls Onesimus my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm in jail. He, gained, he got saved. I become his father. I led him to faith. He says to Philemon, this rich slave owner, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending Onesimus back to you. I'm sending my very heart. For this purpose, for this perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while. He ran away. He took off, which is punishable by death in those days that you might have him back forever. He ran away from you. He sees me in Rome. He gets saved. He said that you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, Paul says, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I want you to put some skin on this book, okay? Paul appeals to this slave owner named Philemon, whose house is where the church meets. He appeals to him on the merits of the gospel to receive Onesimus back, his runaway slave, as a brother. Again, a crime deserving punishment, even death. So here's this runaway slave, Onesimus, who is now with the mail carrier, Tychicus, 
and they're reading the letter, and there's Philemon in the front row. That's very possible. And they're reading this letter. And when we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Colossians, and we see the practicality of, of living a life uh, 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 in the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, Paul is going to instruct slaves to serve their master in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And masters to treat their slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You see the connection? Now, we're not gonna, when we get to that chapter, we'll talk about slavery. I'm not going to get into it now. Don't have time. But how much harder would it be to have this man back and then have the gospel transform their hearts? What that relationship must have looked like now that the gospel was the center of both men. Amazing, amazing. Now let's look at the circumstances just a little bit because this is really important too. The main reason Paul writes this letter to Colossae after hearing from Epaphras what was going on is because there was inroads of false teaching in the church. Okay, we know that. He instructs them, and, and, this, and this false teaching had to do with knowledge and wisdom, and he instructs them in chapter 2, verse 3, that Christ has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, in order that you may not be deluded delude you with plausible arguments. He warns them about this special knowledge. In verse, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, human tradition. I mentioned that earlier. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So here's what we have in Colossae. This is what was going on. This is what was concerning of Epaphras. And we'll get into detail when we get there. But there was this Jewish and pagan element to the false teaching. The false teachers were not giving Christ, uh, the person work of Christ, proper interpretation. They were failing to see the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. They were distorting the truth of the person and the work of Jesus. They were, they were emphasizing higher knowledge as a way of salvation. They were emphasizing this Judaistics, this Judaism ritual and traditionalism. They were, they were talking about worshiping and adoration of a- angels there was emphasis on self-denial this, uh, uh, as a way of, of spirituality, asceticism it's called. There was a, I'm sure you've heard of, of uh, Gnostic teaching. It wasn't in full bloom by now, but you could see some of this Gnostic thought being uh, propagated in the Colossian church where this, this knowledge, you needed this special wisdom and a special knowledge that only the Gnostics can give you that would now you know, bring salvation to your soul. There's hidden knowledge. That's what gnosis means, knowledge. That the simplicity of the gospel wasn't enough. That Jesus wasn't enough. You needed this ritual. You needed this knowledge. You needed this wisdom. Gnostic teaching also uh, teaches that that which is physical is evil, that which is spiritual is good. So God couldn't possibly create the physical world. In fact, Gnostic, when it's full-blown, that what you did with your body and how you acted, even the sin that you committed was no big deal because the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. And you will see all that as we look at this uh, book together. Um, the fall teachers were adding dietary laws holidays, importance of holidays. They were adding to the work of Christ in order to you and I and them in that day to be right before God, to be able to worship God, to be able to come into the presence of God. They were adding all these things. They, weren't, they were saying that Christ wasn't supreme, that Christ was not 
sufficient, this paganism, it was legalism, syncretism, mysticism. And let me tell you, family, why this book is so important today. It will serve well in our culture today, the more I was thinking about it, right? In our culture, science is king. Knowledge is all-sufficient. Information, preeminent. It, it seems everyone around us is jockeying for first place in our life to believe what they think, to believe that they speak the truth, to believe that their interpretation and their worldview is right. Now, science, information, knowledge are not in of themselves bad, but our culture would have us believe that they are all supreme and all sufficient. They are not. In our age where there are thousands and millions of self-help books, the belief that there is no absolute truth, unless, of course, you believe that there is no absolute truth, that's your absolute truth, right? The idea of philosophy and all religions are of the same merit, taking you to the same place. The church needs to be reminded, not only of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, but it will help us align our worldview, a biblical worldview. It will instruct how we are to behave in this world. We are in an ever-increasing secular culture that will scoff and ridicule our faith. Standing on the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished will bring ridicule. It will bring animosity toward God's people. The church better be ready. And, and I'm not saying we should be idiots about it. I'm just saying we need to be ready and learn how to love people in the truth. And understanding the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and all of the beauty and magnificence will be the foundation for us against the onslaughts of ridicule and mocking and animosity. The church that doesn't understand, the church that doesn't see the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ will more than likely water down the gospel. It will water down the gospel and accommodate it to its cultural expectations, to what the culture wants from us. Paul wrote this letter of Colossians to help them and us today grasp even more firmly who Christ is and the rich glories of all that God has done in Christ. Paul hoped to fortify the Colossians the assurance of their hope they had in Christ, affirming the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ as the fullness of God, as our creator and our redeemer. Oh, how we need to hear that truth today. To stand on the victory of Christ on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That salvation can only be found in Christ. We don't need something more. We don't need anything added to the work of Jesus the cross brings redemption, forgiveness of sin. It triumphs over all the powers that would oppress human life. Listen, every believer is made complete when they place themselves under the complete claim of Christ and all the spiritual ills of the world find their cure only in him. Now, I, it is not my goal and it's not my aim to talk, you know, to, to change your mind about your political views, your ideological views. This is about standing on the one firm, solid foundation of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Jesus Christ and his supremacy, authority over all things, and his sufficiency, he is enough. Okay, he is enough. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is all we'll look at for the next few minutes. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Three simple things, and we'll get through these rather quickly. His authority, the apostolic authority, affirmation, and announcement. Okay, just three verses, uh, two verses, three points, rather quickly. The apostolic authority. Paul's letter opens like many of those letters that he wrote and in antiquity, not like us, right? The name of the sender and the writer goes up front, Paul, right? Then the recipients, then a greeting. We write letters, our name goes at the bottom. Who's Paul? We meet Paul in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember the story? The apostle Paul, he's persecuting, terrorizing, and murdering Christians. His name was Saul. By his own testimony, he's a disciple of a very famous Jewish rabbi, He's a scholar. He's a a devoted Pharisee. He's devoted to the word of God. But when Paul comes face to face with Jesus and gets knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, everything changed for Paul. His worldview, his understanding of the Messiah, the work of salvation, everything became more clear. All because he came to see the resurrected Jesus and was filled with the Holy Spirit. He then began to see and became clear how the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. He's the writer of 13 New Testament epistles. He's the major church planting pastor of the New Testament. And he opens up this greeting here in Colossae saying that he is what? An apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle of Christ Jesus. Not only belonging, but a sent by Christ. He belongs to Christ, he is sent by Christ. And when was he sent by Christ? On that road to Damascus. Paul writes over and over in the book of Acts that, that, that Paul, excuse me, that Christ uh, chose him to be a chosen instrument. That he is, in 1 Corinthians, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. He got his commission and his sending from, the, uh, uh, from Christ himself on that road to Damascus and following. Now, if you remember, 61, 60, 61, 62 AD, this letter is written. We're only talking 30, maybe 30 years after the resurrection. There's testimony upon testimony, and people, many people alive that day when this testimony, when this letter was written, who saw the risen Jesus. It's not 2,000 years later, it's 30 years. It's 1992. Some of you folks, young folks, go, yeah, 1992, a long time ago. No, the rest of us are going, that was like three years ago. <laughs> 1992, yeah, a couple of years ago, right? No, 30. Bill Clinton nominated Democratic Party. John Gotti was set into life. Remember that one? L.A. riots occurred. Who would forget that? And most important, 1992 was the release of My Cousin Vinny. 1992. <laughs> Paul's apostleship is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. His authoritative call, authoritative call, is from the resurrected Christ. He's an apostle. Now, the difference between an apostle and disciple, let me just talk about this really quick. A, a disciple, all the apostles were disciples, not all disciples were apostles, okay? 
All apostles were disciples. Not all the disciples became apostles. Following me? Okay, a disciple is a learner, right? Someone who follows a teaching. Not just, not just listening to that teacher, but doing and, and, and walking with and following that teacher. An apostle, apostolos, comes from apo, from, stalos, to send, is a sent one. And what's interesting about apostles, they're not just sent, they're sent with the authority of the one who is sending them. They represent the sender like an ambassador or a power of attorney. The apostles were chosen men, called and commissioned as apostles to teach in his authority and to teach others on his behalf. They were appointed, given authority, credentials for the office of apostle, which does not exist today. Okay? It's not obtainable today. I mentioned this before. Let me just mention it again. Jesus, in the New Testament, when he calls the 12 disciples, calls them out of, uh, to a special group and calls them apostles and sends them out with his authority commissioning him, wasn't something that he made up. It wasn't like we didn't even know what an apostle was until Jesus showed up. That's not how it happened. So everyone in the first century, when Jesus calls these apostles, knows exactly what Jesus is doing. There is a group that's called the Shahila. It's Aramaic, and it means apostles. And what the Sanhedrin would do which is the major player, 70 men who rule Jerusalem, who rule Israel, the 70 men, they're called the Sanhedrin. They would have their own apostles. They would have sent ones who would go from the Sanhedrin out with their authority to, to deal with you know, um, all kinds of disputes, whether it's legal disputes, uh, disputes about the law, religious disputes, and the Sanhedrin would rule and send the apostles out as their representatives with their authority. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I have my own apostles, right? I have my own, own sent ones who are going to bear his authority. You, you wouldn't have an apostle in those days with someone who was dead, okay? Now, I know there are people that run around here calling themselves apostles. If they think they have that kind of authority, it's really only one thing to do. You know what to do. Run. <laughs> Capital A, no such thing. Small a, we could talk about it, sent ones, church planters, like I said once before. It's too confusing. I just stay away from it altogether. Everyone knew in the New Testament Judas was died. They wanted to replace it with someone who saw and was with Jesus. All right, I get, yep, Paul's a Johnny come lately, but he was sent by Christ in the authority of Christ. And notice what he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ sent by him, by the resurrected Jesus himself, by the will of God. You know what he's doing? He wants to make it clear to the church. He's never been there. He doesn't even know them. They don't really even know him. And he wants to make it very clear to them that this letter does not come by way of such good ideas or some thoughts or some opinions or advice. It comes by the authority of Christ himself and by the will of God the Father. That's what Paul is trying to say here. He'll address his concerns, Epaphras' concerns in a moment, but right now he wants to set the record straight. To speak of his apostolic authority and the appointment did not come from his own will, his own independent decision. He was sent by Christ and by the will of God the Father. There's no higher calling, no higher authority. So as he combats his false teachers and corrects these false teachers, he does so by the will of God and the authority of Jesus. It's not about his opinion. What he writes is not his opinion. He comes with decisive directions and directives and truths. 
And family, that should remind us this morning how the importance of the authority of the scriptures over our life. That's what Paul's writing, scripture. 2 Timothy 3, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. The authority and the character of the scripture is as strong as the trustworthy one who authored it. The word of God is a reflection of God himself who can be trusted. It's not just words on a page. It carries the authority of the one who promised and will keep every single promise of Scripture. It is breathed out by God. Jesus knew that. Read the New Testament. He trusted Scripture. As Christians, we receive Scripture as authoritative in all our faith and practice. We come under the Scripture. It unfolds the mystery of salvation, the plan of redemption, It's our job to receive it. It is our privilege to walk under it, to allow it to rule us. Most of us, maybe in this room, may not openly just reject the authority of Scripture, but I think sometimes we can accept it, but our very lives that we live contradict it. Living if it does not have authority in our lives. And we need to repent of that. And come underneath the authority of the word of God. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. Not on my own. Jesus Christ called me. And you know what? It's by the will of of God. And and you know what? I'm with Timothy. My my beloved right-hand man. Paul met uh, Timothy while while Paul and Silas were on their second missionary journey. They're in Lystra and Derbe. They run into this this uh, half-Jew, half-Greek disciple named Timothy. And all of a sudden, Timothy becomes this powerhouse in Paul's life. He, he, he travels with them. He preaches alongside of him. He, he is sent, uh, Paul calls him a devoted son in 1 Corinthians. He's a trusted emissary for Paul, sending him to churches where putting out fires in different churches. He's a, he's, a, he's a brother, he calls him here. Some suggest that Timothy actually was the secretary writing down Paul's words. We don't know. But a trusted friend, Paul is with his brother and son, Timothy. Look at the apostolic affirmation, the way he affirms them. And he writes, from, to, to the saints, faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I don't think he's talking to two different people here, to the saints and faithful brothers as if they were separate. One has to do with their status. The other has to do with their works of, of, of faithfulness, their acts of faithfulness. He's putting them together. Paul has heard from Epaphras that there are, there are brothers, and that term could be brothers and sisters, family. Uh, there, there are those who've been faithful in the midst of, 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 of false teaching, in the midst of conflict and tough times, saints and faithful brothers. Now, depending on your church background, I'm not going to poke fun at anybody, but depending on your church background, depending on your church culture that you were raised, the word saint may conjure up all kinds of different things, Okay? When I grew up, we had a Bible about that thick. And in the back was all the saints with glowing halos. All right? The word saint in the, in the original language, in the Greek, actually has no ethical or any moral meaning at all. It doesn't speak about righteous behavior or character or any moral significance at all. The word saint literally means to set apart or separated ones. Hagias. It is where we get the same word holy, sanctified, 
Set apart, saints. All comes from the same Greek word. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's people were set apart. They were set apart by God. They were chosen and appointed by God, set apart for his service. Israel was to be a nation set apart from the pagan world to display the glory of God. They were set apart from the world and set apart for God's glory. You read about the instruments and the different apparatus in the temple. Those temple utensils and, and, and furniture was set apart for the worship of God in the temple. Like if, you, if your chair broke at home, you weren't going in the temple and grabbing a chair and borrowing it. wasn't doing it. If you were outside barbecue and you were not going to the apparatus that they were using specifically for worship, that was set apart for the worship of God. I grew up with a lot of Jewish friends, and when Yom Kippur or other uh, holidays come, all the, all the utensils and forks, knives, spoons, and cups and plates were put away, and the, what was set apart for that holiday was brought out. A cup is not moral. <laughs> a plate, a barbecue fork, like, right? But it was set apart. And that's what that means. You don't earn the right to become saints. We become saints set apart by God for God, sanctified by Jesus Christ when we confess and repent of our sins. Believers in Colossae that Paul is writing to weren't dead saints that were canonized. They were living saints who were set apart and belonged to God. They didn't earn that right. It was given to them by God. It's not one's holiness or personal holiness. He didn't even know them. It's the objective. Now listen, it is the objective status of every believer due to the, to, the, to the declaration of Christ holiness imparted to us or imputed to the believer by faith in the gospel, right? That's why he says to the saints, set apart, I don't even know you, but I know you've been set apart by God and for God and to the faithful brothers. The, those who've been set apart will continue in the path of faithfulness. Okay? It is only through Christ, faith in Christ, and our union with him in his death and resurrection that we can be set apart. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. Set apart from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's what it means. Notice what Paul is doing here, and we'll move to the next one. But I just want to show you this. He presses in really interesting on talking about these Christians here in verse 1. To the saints, those who set apart, those who are called, those who are elected, those who God's worked in their lives and set them apart. To the faithful brothers, that's, that's familial, that, that's family, that's new identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he says, them in Christ. That's that union, that the partakers of all that Christ is, all that Christ has done, the, 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 the wonderful and deepest and most joyous of mysteries that we're in union with Christ exclusively and inseparably joined to him alone. No longer are they just defined by their blood relatives. They are set apart, brothers and sisters, in union with Christ. You see that all in that one verse. The Jews would see each other and they would say, hey, brother, because they are one. For, for a Jew, Paul, to call Gentiles brothers was radical. Was radical. And it just shows you the, the radical consequences Beautiful radical consequences of the gospel that, that, that swept away all racial prejudices, isolating people from one another. Now they are brothers and sisters in union with Christ. 
Lastly, grace and peace. Notice the order. Grace is more of a, of a, um, grace is more of a, of a, of a Gentile Greek term, peace, more of a Hebrew. He uses both. But notice the order. One must have grace so that you can have peace. Grace and peace. Not just, just, not just subjectively experienced by the believer, God's kindness and tranquility. Rather, it is the point to the pow- it points to the powerful work of Christ and salvation that we can have grace and peace. The grace of God. The unmerited, unfavor- uh, unearned, undeserved love and favor of God in action. That's God's grace. Grace is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Grace, karas, is the, is the act of love which God did as he stepped down from judgment, went to the cross, took the punishment for guilty sinners and the penalty for our sin. The favor is, uh, is freely bestowed upon God. Apart from anything we deserve, apart from our sin, God in love and grace steps down in the person of Jesus Christ and bears our sin, takes our punishment, our deserved wrath upon himself. It is God's sovereign, freely bestowed, loving kindness in operation, and in that grace, the result is peace, grace and peace. Shalom would be the Hebrew expression of that term. Physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological peace, well-being, wholeness, all that God has done. It's, just not, it's not simply just a matter of, um, of, of the absence of hostility. It is, it is the settled and contented wholeness and flourishing that only God could bring through the gospel. Ultimately pointing to the Garden of Eden. A peace a world cannot understand. The peace that a world cannot fathom. A peace which originates in the work of Jesus said, My peace be with you, not as the world gives you. And the peace of God we know from the New Testament is both objective and subjective. The peace of God that is objective is the work of Christ. The reconciliation of man to God through the gospel. The work of Jesus, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the grave, peace obtained through the cross. Where, where man was once uh, uh, at enmity with God, by nature without God, by nature in, 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 in deserving wrath of God. And now God, through the gospel, changes that. Through the cross, changes that. It'll never go back. It's objective. It is true. It is always true. Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Objective peace. But let me tell you something, family. Give me two more minutes. Objective peace, from objective peace, flows subjective peace. I know it ebb and flows. I know it ebb and flows. The inner tranquility that inner peace that God gives us that can cast out all our fears, all our anxiety, comes through the objective truth of the gospel that we can have peace. Of Philippians 4, he tells us, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's your Father through the gospel. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen. True and ultimate grace only comes from God. True and ultimate peace only comes from God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul, so often in his letter, says grace to you at the beginning. 
peace to you. What he's saying is, as you read this letter, as you submit to the authority of Scripture, as you come underneath the Word of God, grace to you, peace to you. As you receive and take in God's Word. And the end of his letters, what does he say? Grace be with you. Peace be with you as you go. As you take his Word and you go into the world. And my hope, listen family, my hope in this series is for us to realize the truth of the supremacy of Christ. That it drives away all our fears and all our anxieties about the future. My hope in this series is to realize the truth of the sufficiency of Christ in all things so that it drives away all our idols. All the silly and foolish things we put our hope in. All the things we run to that will never satisfy. So let me ask you to go to communion. The band, you guys can come up. Family, do you know the grace of God? Do you know the love, the unearned, unmerited grace and favor of God displayed for us on the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you know the peace of God? Do you know the peace of God? Have you left your own striving and your own attempts to be your own savior, to be righteous on your own? Have you left your own striving and run to him? Your own attempts to lift yourself up by the, by the boots, straps, or are you resting and trusting and relying on the grace and the peace of God in the gospel? Have you left everything behind and simply come to Christ? Have you fled to Christ? Have you clung to Christ? Do you recognize the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? Family, I pray that we do, that our hearts are stirred up by the word of God and that we can rest in him. You can trust him today. And if you've never trusted him, it's an invitation as we take communion. The bread represents the body that was broken. The cup represents the blood that was shed. If you've never trusted Christ, today's a day. You bow your head and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. And now I return from that to being my own Savior. I turn from my sin and I'm trusting you as Savior and Lord of my life. If you've never done that, do so as the band plays and then come and take communion. If you've never done that and you're not ready, we're glad you're here. But communion is for the believers, for followers of Christ. But maybe you're here. Let me just say one more word. Maybe... This world has really got us fired up. It gets me fired up. Culture, things going on, lots going on. And, and we should be informative. Are you resting in the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? Maybe now's the day to say, you know what? I, I've, I, I've, I've gotten a little bit unraveled. I need, I need to come back. I need to come back and recognize Jesus has supreme authority over all things. Jesus is sufficient for my salvation and, 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 and human flourishing. Maybe you need to repent from where you're headed or the road you're on and come back. So the band's gonna play. As the band plays, I'll come up these end aisles, grab your communion, sit back down, and then I will lead us in partaking it together. Father, I know I speak for myself. I can, I can be uh, somewhat unraveled with what's going on in the world and caught up in things that really... Um, that we really can't hope in, that will not really produce anything and sustain anyone. Lord, we, we, we want to be a people that recognize the supremacy of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus. Help us to walk in that. Help us not, not to be blind with the world around us, but recognize where our hope lies. So Father, as we just spend time uh, gathering and um, confessing and repenting of sin, uh, whatever your spirit leads us. 
Lord, help us to celebrate communion together in a few moments, Lord God. And we ask that you would get all the glory and that your people will get the joy of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.